Good morning. Praise God for the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. The Catechism is actually arranged into 52 Lord's Days, uh, one for each week of the year. So it would be a great devotional reading to start um, reading one of those questions a week as, you, uh, as we start the new year. We read the first question on the first of the new year. So, amen. I hope you had a wonderful time celebrating the holidays with your families this past week. Some of the church body is still out, including our pastor, so keep them in your prayers. Talking to Pastor Nick this week, uh, deciding what to preach on, he recommended that I talk about the topic of persecution. As he was talking to me about it, he taught me something that I didn't know. He told me that it used to be standard practice to list persecution at the top of the list when it came to what new disciples in the Lord need to know. Up there with prayer, evangelism, holiness, new disciples used to be taught about persecution. He then explained to me that this fell out of practice in the West as publicly professing the name of Christ became a more safe and normal thing to do. And that makes at least some sense pragmatically. So we don't hear people talk about persecution, not a lot, and how to deal with it. On the other extreme, if you read some of the early church fathers, especially Ignatius of Antioch, they seem to have this rather unbalanced view of persecution. They have an unhealthy view. What I'm talking about specifically is that there were some in the early church who desired persecution and even martyrdom, seeing it as the pinnacle of a holy life. Now, don't misunderstand me. Being put to death for your faith is a holy thing, but I want to steer us away from the mentality that's more common than you may think, that we ought to long in some sense for persecution to come and sanctify us. To give away uh, what I'm getting at at the outset, Christians ought to be praying that God would protect us from persecution, yes, but we should also be prepared to face it, should it be in God's providential plan for our lives. So now open with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12. Before we start talking uh, about dealing with persecution, we need to know what it is and where it comes from. So we're going to take a 10,000-foot view and ask ourselves, why is persecution happening in a world made by an all-powerful God? And where does persecution fit into the overarching story of the redemption of God's people that the Scriptures are so concerned with? So Matthew 12, and starting in verse 22, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demon. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if, it's by this, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness toward us in Christ Jesus. Make us willing to hear and heed your word this morning as we press on to know you rightly. Instruct us on this topic, Lord, and let it be a benefit to the body. Guard my mouth from speaking falsehoods and help me to understand your word properly. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, and amen. You can be seated. It may seem strange to you that I chose this text this morning. 
But as I previously noted, I want to place the topic of persecution in a bigger picture, the bigger biblical narrative picture. When God creates the world in Genesis, he looks upon everything he made and he calls it all good. There was no conflict, no strife, no sin, no misery. God's intention for this world was for it to be a place of righteousness. We know how the story goes, however, and Adam and Eve, our first representatives in the garden, willfully disobeyed their maker. At the moment of that disobedience, Adam drives a proverbial wedge between himself and his created purpose. Instead of God damning the entire human race in that instant, as would have been his right to do, he instead gives us the first glimpse of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From this point on in Scripture, we read about the progressive unfolding of God's promise. We, call, we see him call a man named Abraham into a far country and give him promises of an undeserved inheritance. When Abraham's offspring are forced into slavery, and we might begin to think that God's promises were of no effect, God sends Moses to deliver his people and to make a new and gracious covenant with them. They were constituted into an earthly kingdom, God's kingdom on earth. The fullness of God's kingdom, however, was yet to arrive. We know that because God makes another covenant with the patriarch David, telling him that when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. The promise of this kingdom, I'm arguing here, is fulfilled in our text this morning. You might be asking again what, ha- what this has to do with persecution. I hope that becomes clear in just a moment. God's plans and purposes for the redemption of his people, for the crushing of the serpent's head, are tied up with what the New Testament calls the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus preaches in the New Testament, very often the Gospels say he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. To tie this in, and the reason I'm talking about the kingdom of God this morning, is because persecution at its root is a conflict of kingdoms. Persecution arises in the Christian life precisely because the kingdom of darkness or of Satan collides with the kingdom of God. Looking back at our text, the Pharisees see Christ casting out a demon and accuse him of doing it by the power or authority of Satan. Christ, however, points out to them that this was impossible. Verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, Christ says, it doesn't make sense for devils to fight against devils. Satan isn't going to go around destroying his own kingdom. Rather, Christ says, it is he who is doing violence to the kingdom of Satan. Verse 28. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, Jesus is talking, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. This coming kingdom that God's people had been waiting for for hundreds of years, Christ says, has come. Notice this if-then statement. If, he says, he's casting out demons by the Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come. So let me ask you, did Christ cast out demons by the Spirit of God? So through the New Testament, we see two kingdoms in battle. Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness and unbelief, is being assaulted by the newly come kingdom of Jesus Christ. When Christ assaults Satan's kingdom, however, it looks like people gaining eternal life. It looks like righteousness and peace now ruling in the hearts of those who were once part of the kingdom of darkness. 
But when we see Satan's kingdom assault the kingdom of Christ, we see persecution and suffering. We see martyrdom and mockery. The word persecution literally means to aggressively chase away or to drive away. Persecution is the means by which Satan desperately tries to cling on to his kingdom. God himself entered into the devil's domain to purchase a people for his own possession, and the devil, frightened by his impending doom, tries in vain to chase away God's people or else to bring them back into his kingdom of darkness. So we've seen the origin of persecution arising from the animus of the kingdom of darkness over against the kingdom of God. But turn with me now to Matthew 10 to look at Christ's words addressing this subject a little more explicitly. Matthew 10. We're going to try to look at two aspects of persecution. We've already noted the cause of persecution arising from the hostility of the kingdoms. But the two aspects of the persecution we're looking for are the context and the hope of persecution. So Matthew 10, starting in verse 16, and in the context of the passage, we see Christ sending out the twelve apostles into the Jewish people, more particularly, to preach the arrival of the Messiah. Verse 7 says that they are preaching the kingdom of heaven. And as Christ sends them out, he gives them words of warning and admonishment. We read, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and and before kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given you in that hour. For it's not what you speak, it's not uh, you who speak rather, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We need to be careful that we remember this has primary relevance to the apostles in the first century. We realize that much of what is said in Scripture, especially when in narrative form, does not apply to us as directly as a moral command or a gospel promise would. But if we read the text carefully, we can make application from the principles laid out. Christ says that the apostles are going out as sheep among wolves. They will be beaten, he says. They will be tried by the law. But they're to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom nonetheless. Fear of man shouldn't motivate them, but a reverent fear of the Messiah who is sending them. We have a message of salvation. Christians have the message of hope for a dying world, a message of light that disperses the darkness, and no amount of resistance ought to dissuade us from our proclamation. We go out as heralds of the good news of salvation and redemption. As the apostles are sent out as sheep among wolves, so too are we sent out into a hostile and godless world. While we may not face the same deathly persecution that the apostles of our text did in light of the Jewish persecution in the first century, we're still a sanctified people in a hostile world. We need to heed Jesus' words, therefore, and be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. In our evangelistic endeavors, we need to have wisdom, he says. There should be a careful and thought-out way in which we carry out our mission. I think this partially involves being crafty in how to avoid persecution, by the way. We see Paul practicing this kind of wisdom in 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, At Damascus, the governor under King Artius was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through the window in the wall and escaped his hands. 
The innocence that Christ says the apostles ought to have harkens back to the contrast we were making between the kingdoms of darkness and light. Satan's kingdom advances through violence, deceit, and malice, but the kingdom of God advances by a spirit-filled persuasion and preaching of the good news. Christ's kingdom isn't advanced by sword or by worldly means, but by a conversion of sinners. But if we go out into a world of wolves preaching this kind of message of redemption and making the powers of darkness tremble, we, as the apostles, will receive backlash. There will be opposition, there will be resistance, and there will be hard-heartedness. But we have to remember the mission and live in light of it. Although persecution is brutal, although it is undesirable, although it's a sign of a broken world, there's a certain hope in persecution. There's a sense in which the sufferings of this life, as Paul says, are working for us an eternal weight of glory that will be revealed to us on the last day. Turn with you, with me, if you will, to Romans 5. Romans 5. Romans 5, starting in verse 3. And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We see that suffering, of which persecution is a glaring example, is somewhat sanctifying. So much so, Paul says, that we ought to be boasting in our afflictions. That is, we ought to be rejoicing in our trials. God's ways are often paradoxical. We talked about this, uh, or I talked about this last time. Here we see a good example. The pagan persecutes the Christian. And instead of being driven to despair, the Christian is built up, sanctified, and assured of his faith. Several years ago, Pastor Nick preached a sermon where he made this very point about Paul. He said something along the lines of, that's why I love Paul. You threaten to persecute him, and he says, I'll rejoice in my sufferings. You threaten to throw him in prison, and he says, I'll spread the gospel even there. You threaten to kill him, and he says, then I'll depart and be with Christ, which is far better. In the same way as Paul, we who are in Christ really do have a present and abiding hope in persecution. Note especially that last fruit of our affliction in verse 4. Paul says that ultimately, afflictions and sufferings will drive the Christian to what? To hope. About this hope, Calvin writes that it regards salvation as most certain. We're hoping in our salvation. Those evils, then, cannot render us miserable, which do in a manner promote our happiness. He's saying this can't make us utterly miserable. We can't be driven to despair when it promotes our happiness in such a way. Do you see the paradox? Another way we can look at the hope of persecution is to realize that historically, a persecuted church is a growing church. Because God confounds the wisdom of the world, we see all of the world's efforts at stamping out the Christian faith, resulting in its exponential growth. This was true of the first century church, as it was persecuted by Jews and Romans, and it's true of the church in our day, let's say in China. As much as the country would like to rid itself of the gospel we preach, It's precisely in that country that thousands of churches are being planted and millions are being converted. As the old saying goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It seems like whatever, wherever rather, blood is spilt for the name of Christ, the gospel begins to triumph. In America, we've been blessed with a nominally Christian environment, 
But as we should all be aware of, we have brothers and sisters around the world who face close to exactly what we see in our text this morning, close to what the apostles did. Will that ever come to America? I don't know. I hope the Lord brings great conviction of sin over this nation in such a way that we see millions bow the knee to Christ. But what happens if we see the opposite over the course of our lives? We need to prepare ourselves as individuals and as a church body to potentially encounter what we see happening in other places around the world. But let me say at the outset that the last thing that will prepare us for persecution, hear me on this, the last thing that will prepare us for persecution is fear. Too often when we hear discussions of persecution, they're clouded in what could only be called a fear of the future. Proverbs calls the fear of men a snare, a trap. God has given us his word, he's given us his sure promises, and through them we ought to shrug off all notions of fear. Remember again the attitude of Paul. Paul wasn't fearful because he trusted in the promises of God. He knew persecution would work out for his good, so he didn't fear it. He knew that even martyrdom would work out for his good, so he didn't fear it. When we have the sure word of God, the sure promises of God, there's no reason for fear. In fact, to be afraid of the days that lie ahead of us, to let the fear of men keep you up at night, is to, when it comes down to it, tell God that you don't trust him. It's to tell him that he's not trustworthy. If we thought he was trustworthy, if we think his word and his promises are forever settled in the heavens, then we cannot fear. So as we talk about how to prepare for the possibility of persecution, remember the promises of God. Trust in his sovereignty and let perfect love drive out all fear. But I want to give three areas in which we need to be laboring so that if persecution ever did come to us, we will be more than ready. The first I already mentioned, but it's to keep the promises of the gospel on our minds. Turn to Romans 8. In Romans 3 through 6, we have Paul laying out the great message of salvation in painstaking detail as he Uh, As the book of Romans reaches its height, however, in the passage before us now, Paul talks about how the gospel message interfaces with the issue of persecution. Let's read, starting in verse 28, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Paul's main point here is that the love of Christ that is ours as Christians is non-refundable, so to speak. It doesn't leave us. Because of the glorious promises of verses 28 through 30, because we uh, who have trusted in Christ are assuredly going to be glorified, Paul can ask in verse 35, who can possibly separate us from the love of God? He then lists all sorts of dangers that Christians were facing in his day. Affliction, or turmoil, or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. He even says that they are like sheep going away to be slaughtered. And what's his conclusion? Therefore, woe is me. Therefore, be exceedingly fearful and hide yourselves away. No. Paul says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly, what? Conquer through him who loved us. Not only are we okay, not only is there hope, but we are conquering through persecution. That is... As Christians are being beaten, mocked, scourged, and even killed, they are the ones that emerge victorious. They are the ones who receive an unfading crown of glory. They are the ones rewarded by their Heavenly Father. Through persecution and sufferings, again, paradoxically, we win. As the church has marched forward in history and grown unimaginably in size, the kingdom of darkness has tried over and over to stop the gospel by violence. But not only has it not worked, it cannot work. Because through the efforts of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Christ marches on from triumph to triumph. As Christ conquered the grave through suffering and death. Notice that again. As Christ conquered the grave through suffering and death, so too does the Christian church conquer through the feeble persecution that's set against us. So rejoice, Christian. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on the promises of the gospel. You too will conquer through him who loved us. In fact, as Christ says in Matthew 5, blessed are you. Let me say it again. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Remember, dear brothers, if you are to be prepared to face persecution, first and foremost... You need to think on these promises. Think on the promises of the gospel. But moving on from the level of the individual to the corporate, how do we as a church body prepare for persecution? We remind ourselves first of the wrong answer. We don't fear. But positively, it's my contention that the best way a church body can fortify itself for the potential of persecution is to be about the work of building a robust Christian community. Not just relationships or even friendships, but at a more foundational level, as the author of Hebrews says, we need to be exhorting one another every day. We need to be in each other's lives. Too often churches are stunted because they view fellowship and edification as a Sunday-only duty. Let's be quick to turn away from that kind of minimalist Christianity and be the kind of church we read about in the book of Acts. Daily involved in exhorting, fellowshipping, and worshiping with one another. I wholeheartedly believe that if the three descriptors I'm about to list could honestly be said about our church, we will be more than ready for any persecution should it ever befall us. First on the list, and the most central of them all, is that we are a church dedicated to a pure worship of God. When we think about the Protestant Reformation, we usually think about things like justification by faith alone, purgatory, the authority of Scripture, and other various issues And while all of those things were fiercely contended for during that time, the chief concern of the Reformers, it seems to me, was the purity of our worship. In a letter entitled, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, Calvin wrote the following. 
If one should ask on what things Christianity chiefly stands among us and retains its truth, the following not only certainly hold first place, but also comprehend under themselves all the remaining parts. In other words, Calvin's saying, we believe ourselves to hold to true religion because we agree with the apostles on two crucial things. He lists them as, number one, how God is rightly worshipped. And two, where we must seek salvation. If we want to be Christians, especially biblical Christians, we need to ensure that we are worshiping God rightly. And the way we can be most sure we're worshiping God rightly is by strictly obeying how the scriptures tell us to worship him. We're, cha- we're charged, rather, to gather together in community, to hear the word preached, to sing the word, to pray the word, and see the promises of the word visibly displayed in the sacraments. This task, worshiping God rightly on the Lord's day, is at the center of all Christian community. If we don't get this right, if we don't get the heart of Christianity right, worshiping our triune God, we'll never have anything more than a superficial gathering wrapped up in the emotionalism and sentimentalism that we often see in modern churches. Pure worship is at the heart of all true reformation and revival. More than that, it's at the heart of all Christian courage and piety. If we were ever to stand against the waves of persecution, we would need to have a robust love for God expressed publicly and frequently in corporate worship. This is what reassures our hearts each week in the Lord. It reminds us of the promises of the gospel And it's where God meets us in a special covenantal way. Second, we need to be a hospitable people. Fellowship, of course, can and does happen within the four walls of the church on Sunday, but that actually shouldn't be close to the extent of our fellowship. Hospitality is a fairly frequent command in the New Testament. Hebrews 13.12, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Timothy 3, 2 says that to be an elder, one must be hospitable. 1 Timothy 5, 10 tells us that a woman must be hospitable to be put on the widow list in the church. And on and on could we go. Hospitality links us together in fellowship. It strengthens our love and affection for one another, and it opens up our ability to be growing together more than one day a week. Hospitality lets us fulfill the command of Hebrews 3 to encourage one another day after day, daily. So get together, eat together, sing hymns together. I know hospitality is hard. I know it can pose a unique set of challenges. But what a beautiful way to mirror the free grace of the gospel to our brothers than to give freely of our homes. In doing this, and growing in fellowship through hospitality, we remind each other daily why it's worth it to follow Christ. We get to be encouraged and strengthened in our convictions through the week. Persecution, when it does arise in history, is not usually an individual occurrence. It's not usually just one person here and one person there, but opposition arises against the entire church of an area. If, God forbid, we were to ever ever to deal with this in the future, we'd all be in this together. We'd be in it as a community, as a body. For many Christians in the world right now, they have to face the threat of physical violence every week. If they're caught going to church. And there are many Christians who, faced with this troubling choice, go anyway. They evangelize anyway. They obey God anyway. Would we be as willing? I can tell you that it's hard for me to imagine that someone who is not regularly involved in the fellowship of the church and who hasn't fully committed themselves to a local body of believers, it's hard for me to imagine 
that they would obey and fear God rather than men in that scenario. It's hard for me to imagine that someone who isn't regularly engaging the body, serving the body, fellowshipping with the body under normal circumstances, that they would commit to doing so when the stakes are raised, when there are threats breathing down their backs, if we aren't committed to fostering an environment of fellowship and love and hospitality toward one another now, this church will never make it when times get hard. If we aren't busy growing our roots deep into the holiness and fellowship now, it's hard to imagine that this church will be any different than the seed sown on rocky ground. Christ says that seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, he says... They last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, they quickly fall away. So I challenge you. Invite someone into your home this week. Show them the love of Christ by freely providing for them without expectation of return. And encourage them in the Lord. Grow your roots deep into Christian fellowship and start obeying Christ's commands to love the body now while times are good so that you can find yourself faithful when times are bad. Third, we should be striving to be a prayerful people. I can tell you right now that if persecution comes and you rely on your own strength, your own courage, your own self-motivation, you'll be lost in despair. And what better way to kill reliance on self than to frequently come before the Lord in a spirit of utter dependence? When we pray rightly, we're acknowledging that each day we need the strength of the Lord that only He can provide. A prayerful people are a people who realize that all they have is given to them as a gift. From above. Then, what, when persecution comes, it will be a natural response to turn to the Lord for strength. Through prayer, we become used to acknowledging our sin, humbling ourselves before the Lord, and putting things into perspective. So we talked about looking to the promises of the gospel and building robust Christian communities to prepare for persecution. But the third way to prepare is to begin to uh, give up the love of our worldly comforts. We live extremely comfortable lives. By no means is it wrong to have new cars or nice homes. These things are our blessings. But here's my question. It was the question of my last message as well. Would you be willing to give it all away for Christ? He tells us that if we wish to be his disciples, we need to renounce all our possessions, Luke 14. We're not our own. Our possessions are not our own. But sometimes we become so infatuated with our things or possessions, that I'm afraid we would have too hard of a time giving them up if it came down to it. Turn with me to Matthew 6. It's a familiar text. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves... Treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. About this text, Matthew Henry wrote, Worldly mindedness is a common and fatal symptom of hypocrisy. For by no sin can Satan have a surer and faster hold of the soul under the cloak of a profession of religion. Worldly wealth is not sinful, but it is dangerous. 
It can lead our hearts away from a pure love of God and fix our loves on our everyday comforts. God warns the Old Testament saints of this in Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, verse 7. Deuteronomy 8, 7, we read, For Yahweh your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land in whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And so you will eat and be satisfied. And you shall bless Yahweh your God for, for the good land which he gives to you. But, he says, beware lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes that I am commanding you today. Lest you eat and are satisfied and build good houses and live in them and your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies and your heart becomes lifted up and you forget Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. God often blesses, blesses his people. We read that here, but we also need to be sure that our things, our stuff, doesn't distract us from the one who gives us the good and per- perfect gifts. If the time were to come where you had to make a decision to remain loyal to Christ or have your home taken away, or as it is the case in India, uh, you have your family beaten with rods, are you confident that Christ will be the more valuable treasure in your eyes? Would you be willing to give up your freedom and be taken prisoner as the Apostle Paul was? All the comforts you enjoy, make sure they are less glorious in your estimation than the fidelity to the God who saved you. I know this is a heavier subject for the first of the year. Like I said previously, the last thing we need to do when we talk about persecution is fear. Again, as Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I'm not trying to scare you or encourage you to become some sort of doomsdayist. These things are simply in the Word of God, and so we need to be instructed in them. Actually, uh, I'm rather optimistic about the future. Yeah, call me crazy. Uh, But I'm optimistic about the future because I'm standing before a group of Christians that love the Lord, have a message that constitutes the very power of God to salvation. Because Christ is presently reigning over the nations, think about what we read in the book of Acts. As one pastor is fond of saying, the story opens with 11 very confused disciples. And it ends with the gospel permeating the entire Roman Empire. Fast forward another century, and the Roman Empire is an officially Christian empire. Fast forward to our day, and with all our problems, with all the false teachings and heretical sects, with all the atheist dogma, with all the political turmoil, Christ is still reigning. We still have the same gospel of salvation that the apostles did. We're still acting as a light to the nations. So what do we do? Persecution is possible. That's true. There are no special promises to America in Scripture. Yes, we need to be prepared by all the ways I mentioned. But what do we do if we don't want our country to start looking like first century Rome? We do exactly what the early Christians did. We preach the gospel. We meet every week and worship our triune God on the Lord's day. We root ourselves deeply in Christian community. Sometimes we have a tendency to romanticize men and movements and history that affected great noticeable change. We look to the great intellect and preaching of the reformers, and we're right to appreciate and admire them. But most of the progress that the gospel makes doesn't come through singular men with famous names. 
It comes through small and sometimes unnoticed acts of obedience by people like you. Gospel progress comes through many faithful Christian parents discipling their children. It comes through men whose names will never be written in history books. There will never be documentaries made about them. It comes through Christians like you reading the scriptures and obeying. By reading Christ's command to make disciples and by doing it. You're no Martin Luther and neither am I. You're no Jonathan Edwards and neither am I. You are, however, a Christian that knows the gospel and whose small acts of obedience, God, or who uh, by small acts of obedience, God will pay eternal dividends. Remember how Christ spoke about the kingdom. He didn't liken it to a great political revolutionary who quickly wins the hearts of his hearers. He likens it to a little mustard seed, a little seemingly insignificant mustard seed that begins small but grows into the largest tree in the garden. Christ is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there's great reason for optimism. Be the kind of faithful Christian who obeys the Lord in your ordinary station of life. That's the optimism. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Church, submit to the elders who have authority over you and preach the gospel. Perhaps through the evangelistic efforts of a little Bible church in Tennessee, we can see in a tangible way light starting to overcome the darkness. Perhaps the Lord will see fit to use a small, seemingly insignificant little church to glorify his name in the conversion of a multitude of sinners. I don't know. But I do know that he's called us to be faithful. But if the Lord chooses not to spare us, fret not. America is not the kingdom of God. Those who think it is are fools. Our hope in Christ is not tied up in an earthly country, but as the author of Hebrews says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels and to the festal gathering and assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We have come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom of Christ. As the worship team makes their way up here, I just want to say there's no room for despair in this message. No amount of persecution, no amount of suffering can rob you of this hope. So here's the call to action. Be faithful. Recognize the promises of the gospel, believe them, and be faithful. Then if persecution arises... Keep being faithful. While we're in this world, there will be trouble, but take heart, dear brothers. Christ has overcome the world. Let's pray. God, you are our rock and our redeemer, one who remains faithful when we are faithless. Let our reading from your word today help us realize the glorious plans you have for the spreading of your kingdom. Let not the chaos of the world cause us to forget that you are building your church. Help us gain a proper view of our sufferings. And help us gain a gratitude for the sufferings we aren't experiencing. Bless our persecuted brothers around the world as they come together today. Let them be comforted by the promises of your gospel. We ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen.